Beloved, I would invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, and please stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we pick up once again in this uh, magisterial epistle of Paul uh, in our morning services. Romans chapter 7, and beginning in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law? that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Here ends the reading of God's Word. May the Lord bless it to us. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that you would be pleased by your Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds, that we would not only hear your Word preached, but that we would receive it, that we would believe it, and that we would respond to it by grace through faith in your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. In the opening greeting of his letter uh, to the Romans, Paul referred to himself, you'll remember, as a bond servant of Jesus, an apostle, and one who was set apart for the gospel of God. Again, he referred to himself as a bond servant of Jesus, an apostle, and one who was set apart for the gospel of God. Now, One might pass over this introduction uh, without much fanfare and without much thought. But the introduction is a striking one when we consider the former life of Paul, the author to this epistle. Before becoming a Christian, Paul sought to destroy the gospel. Paul sought to crush the burgeoning church in Jerusalem. In his own words, in Philippians 3.6, he was a persecutor of the church. He even sought permission to track down and arrest Christians in Damascus. If you were a Christian in that day and you saw Paul, uh, formerly called Saul, walking down the street, you would have probably taken another path. You would have hidden yourself. In Acts 9, 1 and 2, it states that, quote, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, Paul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, end quote. His trip to Damascus was interrupted, however. Rather than confront and capture believers in Damascus, Paul was confronted and captured by the resurrected and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. And thereafter, Paul's life was 
forever changed. The scales of unbelief fell from his eyes. He now cherished the one that he had previously hated. Paul would now joyfully and boldly proclaim the gospel message that he previously sought to silence. Think of the one person, maybe it's you, think of the one person that you could imagine in a million years ever being converted, ever becoming a preacher of the gospel. And if you were living in this day, you would have thought of the Apostle Paul. But perhaps there's someone you're thinking of. No one is beyond the power of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. No one is beyond this power. God can save the foulest sinner for his own glory. Paul was one of them. He was formerly a slave to sin and, in his own words, a captive to the law. But now, by God's sovereign grace, he was a willing bond slave of Jesus Christ. Let us not forget the drama of the life and conversion of Paul, even as we study these glorious doctrines that are set forth in the epistle to the Romans. You see, this is what God, by his powerful grace, does in the lives of unworthy sinners. He convicts consciences. He converts hearts. He convinces minds. He captures wills and affections. He does it. He does it himself, and it's all of grace. We contribute nothing to it. It's not Jesus' work plus a little bit of our work equals salvation. It's Christ has done it equals salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? That is the good news of the gospel that we glory in this morning. He does it. It's all of grace. It happens not by our own, our own efforts, but by the power of God's Spirit, uniting sinners to the risen Christ through faith. And this, of course, is not only what happens to Paul and the apostles, but to every sinner who repents and believes the gospel from young to old to somewhere in the middle. This gospel is true for all sinners. Repent and believe the gospel. Indeed, Paul declared in verse 16 of chapter 1 that the gospel, remember, is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. That's why we are gathered here this morning, to rejoice in the sure hope of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. So after Paul introduces himself as a bond slave of Jesus Christ and an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, he, sent, he, set, he spends the next 11 chapters of this book expounding upon this gospel, explaining this gospel, defending this gospel, helping us to understand the difference between the law and the gospel. In fact, there are all kinds of contrasts in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And we have, I think, seen them all in the first six chapters of Romans as we are now in our 52nd week studying this book. Some are surprised by the length of a sermon series like this. I'm surprised that it's only the 52nd week where we are. Lloyd-Jones preached, I think, over 400 sermons on Romans. I'm not going to do that. No worries. No worries. But there's so much here, the layers upon layers of glorious truth 
that we need to know and to hear, to know and to commune with our Savior. But he spends the next 11 chapters explaining in somewhat intricate detail the nature and implications of the gospel. And he does this partly by contrasts. What are some of those contrasts? Well, I just mentioned one. Law and gospel. Law and gospel. How do we understand the law properly and how do we understand the gospel property properly in relationship to the law? Because so many, not only in Paul's day, but in our own day, believe that our obedience to the law in some measure makes us right with God. And we know that to not be the case. And Paul labors that point over and over that the gospel is all of grace and not of works. And so that's the next contrast, works and faith. Are we saved by our good works or are we saved by faith in Jesus Christ? Well, we know the answer to that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Adam and Christ. In Adam we die. In Christ we are made alive. Fourthly, we have the contrast of death and life. Fifthly, condemnation and justification. Sixthly, flesh and spirit. Seventh, sin and grace. So over and over again, we have these contrasts so that we can get our, our, our minds around this glorious truth, which is larger than life in many ways, so that we understand this gospel gives us a firmer grasp on the gospel and the implications of its power in our lives as we study these things. Paul begins his letter, of course, with a sober exposition of the universal sinfulness or depravity of mankind from chapter 118 to chapter 3, verse 20. As Christians, we have categories for why the world is as it is today. We have categories for it. We really, we really shouldn't say, and I think we all say it from time to time, but we really shouldn't say, how can things be this way in the world today? How can things be this bad? We have categories for this. It's called Romans 1.18 through 3.20 and the universal depravity or sinfulness of mankind. Paul states in chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He goes on to explain that mankind claiming to be wise, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We are hearing a lot in the news about disinformation, about the withholding of information. Well, this is something that all of humanity does all the time in our hearts. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We tell ourselves lies our flesh lies to us, the devil lies to us, the world lies to us, and we often find ourselves believing it. And unbelievers, those who are outside of Christ, certainly are living a life of believing all of those lies. That's why we so desperately need the gospel. Now here in chapter 1, the apostle is mainly describing pagan nations who worship in pagan ways, and exchange the truth of God for a lie, and worship the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so when you go overseas and you go to places like the East and elsewhere, you'll see people worshiping giant statues, worshiping statues in the image of animals and creeping things, and just what Paul is describing here. 
Paul then mentions a third exchange that happens in a world where there is original sin and, 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 and humanity is depraved. This exchange is the exchange of natural sexual relations for the unnatural. There is always an LGBTQI plus revolution when a people turn away from God. That's always the end and the, the fruit of a people or a nation that turns its back on God and embraces pagan spirituality. It is what happens. That's the progression, exchanging the glory of God for false idols, exchanging the truth about God for lies, and then exchanging God-given marriage and sexual relations within marriage for those that are unnatural. And so, clearly, it's set forth that that the Gentiles are sinful, non-Jews. But then Paul doesn't give his fellow religious Jewish countrymen a free pass, does he? No, in the remainder of these, this section from 118 to 320, Paul calls his own countrymen out for their rank hypocrisy and for relying upon their Jewish status and highly flawed law-keeping for their standard with God. Of course I'm right with God. I am a Jew, they would say. Of course I'm right with God. We have the law. Look, there it is on my shelf. Of course I'm right with God. I have a Jewish heritage and background. And, and even though their life was full of hypocrisy and disobedience to that law, they would put their hope and trust in the fact that they had the law and that they had Jewish blood running through their veins. And so Paul states in chapter 2, verse 5, as a fellow Jew, quote, that because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Storing up wrath. Paul explains that both Jews and Gentiles in their natural state are guilty of breaking God's law and are thus under his divine judgment. Paul, you may remember, concludes this heavy section in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Look there with me. Chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And he writes, quote, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I remember as a young minister, while in seminary, I had a difficult meeting with a mentor of mine, and he was explaining to me that something needed to happen, and certain things needed to stop happening. And I kept talking, and I kept talking, and I kept responding, and I kept giving excuses, and I kept giving justifications. And at one point, he raised his voice, which was totally appropriate in my opinion, and said, you need to shut your mouth and listen. Humbled me. And I'll never forget that. It was somewhat of a turning point about the need to listen and to stop talking. Here in chapter 3 and verses 19 and 20, we are told that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. 
all of the excuses will stop. All the justifications, it will all stop because next to every person will be a mountain, a Mount Everest of evidence against us. And there will be no more excuses, no more lies, no more misinformation, no more suppressing the truth. The truth will be exposed. It will all be out there. And he ends verse 20 by saying, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, something that is, is taught in our own passage for this morning. The law was never given to save us from sin. The law was given to expose our sin and to arouse sin within us so that we would look to Christ. Well, thankfully, Paul doesn't stop there in verses 19 and 20. Rather, he begins the next major section in verse 21 with those two beautiful words, but now, but now. You'll see those words all over the New Testament. They're Pauline in emphasis. Paul uses them over and over again, but now. Here's the good news. Though all these things are true of humanity, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, dear ones, please hear this. It's not through obedience to the law that we receive a right standing with God. It's not through our so-called good works that we receive a right standing with God, for our best efforts are but great failures. Our tainted and tattered righteousness will not do. Our obedience never meets God's standard. Dear ones, your obedience and my obedience never meets God's standard. Our righteousness is but filthy what? Rags. But there is a righteousness that does meet God's standard. There is a righteousness that does meet God's standard. There is indeed an obedience that fulfills God's law, and it's the righteousness and obedience of God's beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we do not earn our salvation through our faulty good works. We receive salvation as a free gift from God by receiving and resting in Christ by faith. Again, we do not receive a right standing with God through our obedience to God's law. We receive a right standing with God through faith in Christ, the one who obeyed God's law perfectly on our behalf, and then as a perfect lawkeeper on our behalf, gave his life on the cross as an atonement for all of our wretched sins, all of them, all of them, even the worst of them, even the worst of them that that you've committed, something that maybe has niggled in your mind for 20, 30 years perhaps, something you did in the past, things you did in the past. He died even for those. And he purchased your redemption as a sinless, spotless lamb, an atonement for your sins. In Christ, you are no longer condemned. You are justified. Therefore, Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To further elucidate this glorious gospel, Paul provides some important teaching and contrast uh, between union with Adam and union with Christ. United to Adam, we are guilty. 
United to Adam, we are spiritually dead. United to Adam, we are enslaved to sin. It's not a good place to be. But united to Christ, united to Christ by grace through faith, we are justified. We are spiritually alive and joyfully enslaved to Jesus. We, we joyfully and willingly say, yes, put on the bonds of Christ. I want to be enslaved to him because he died for me. He lives for me. I'm with him. I want to be with him forever. I want to serve him. And then finally, in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul explains that there are moral and ethical implications to our justification in Christ. Being justified before God in Christ doesn't mean we, we live any way we so choose. Or that we just don't worry so much about obedience. No. No, in Christ, we've died to the power and tyranny of sin. Sin no longer reigns over those who are united to Christ. That reign has been broken through Christ's death to sin and his resurrection to life. Those chains that held us have been broken. No longer are we chained and enslaved to sin, hell, and death. It, is no, long, it no longer has dominion over us, but rather Christ does. We are no longer in the kingdom of darkness. We are in the kingdom of life and light in Christ. We are slaves of righteousness, slaves of Christ. Paul writes in verses 22 and 23, Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the glorious summary statements, really, of the first six chapters of Romans that we have just swept through and have seen the glory of, of Paul's declarations of this good news. Well, then, this brings us to chapter 7, a chapter that expounds upon a couple of earlier statements that Paul made back in chapters 5 and 6 about the nature and the role of the law and the law's relationship to sin. <clears throat> these two verses in particular are these, if you're taking notes. Romans 5.20. Romans 5.20 and Romans 6.14. Romans 5.20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Once again, now the law came in to increase the trespass. The law came not only to expose sin, but to show the vast nature of sin and even to arouse and stir up sin. Because we know as human beings, with our rebellious hearts, when we are told not to do something, the first thing we want to do is what? To do it. One of our nephews is going to Princeton this fall, and he's going as an older student. And uh, we're very, very, very proud of him. Uh, but one of the fun stories we have is when uh, Marla and I, while we were dating, we babysat him as like a one-year-old. And there was this particular lamp. The only thing in the room he was not supposed to touch. And we said, you can't touch the lamp. Don't touch the lamp. Of course, he's looking over there. I'm touching that lamp. And as time went on, he's kind of creeping over there. We're like, don't touch the lamp. He's kind of going over there. He gives us this smile, you know. 
And he touched the lamp. Of course, we're not his parents, so we can do nothing about it. But um, that's the heart, not only of a child, but of an adult. We are given commands, and when we get those commands, we start thinking about how we're going to break those commands when we are in our natural selves in particular. So God did not give us the law so that we could obey it and be saved because he knows that's impossible. We know that's impossible. He gave us the law to show us our sin, to expose our sin like a mirror. We look into it. We see all the the imperfections of our face and so forth. The law does this. We look into it. We see the imperfections of our souls and how often we break God's law, but not only to expose our sin, but to arouse it. Romans 6.14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So what does that mean? You're not under law, but under grace. With these two statements about the law, the Apostle Paul predicted further questions arising about the nature and role of the law for the Christian. Thus he sought to give further clarification on these matters. Ironically, aspects of this chapter are hard to understand. So the main truth is clear. This chapter is about how to understand the role of the law and its relationship to sin. Tom Schreiner comments that, quote, although Romans 7 is one of the most disputed and complex chapters in the entire letter, it is generally agreed that the main issue informing the chapter is the relationship between the law and and sin, I would also argue about the relationship of the Christian to the law in his new life in Christ. And so this chapter, when I began preaching in Romans, Romans 7 was that one chapter I thought, oh, one day I'll be at Romans 7. And I know that's going to be a challenging chapter to preach. And so here we are, and here we go as we give a, basically a brief introduction to these verses this week, and we'll continue considering them next week. Look with me at your bulletin. You'll see on page 8 a brief outline with three points that Paul is clearly making in the first six verses of this chapter 7. And again, the most important thing for you this morning is not for me to stand up here and tell you stories about my life or to entertain you in various ways. The most important thing I could do for you this morning is to clearly set forth before you the gospel of Jesus Christ as set forth in the book of Romans, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And so please, please hear this first point, that Christian, you are dead to the law through Christ. You are dead to the law through Christ. Now look with me again at verses 1 through 4a. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another woman while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And so this is an illustration here. Of course, there are truths here about marriage, marriage being between a man and a woman, and that you can't live with another man or another woman while you're married. That's adultery. Uh, so there are standards and rules according to the law of marriage. 
Uh, but that's not really the main point he's trying to make. He's using this as an illustration to say this in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. What's going on here? Well, Paul addresses the Adelphoi or the brothers, you know, the word Philadelphia, uh, the city of brotherly love. Adelphoi is the, uh, the plural Greek term for brothers or brothers and sisters. And he's speaking to those who know the law, those who are fellow uh, Jews, who are also professors of faith in Christ, or proselytes, those who were uh, Gentiles, who were formerly uh, practicing Jews, having been brought in, and know the law. They know, therefore, that the law is only binding on a person so long as he lives. The law is not binding on a dead person. Paul then provides this illustration to make a vital point about the Christian's relationship to the law and his or her relationship to Jesus Christ. Paul explains that a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. If he were to die, however, she would be released, freed from the law of marriage, and thus would be free to marry another. She would be free to marry another. If, on the other hand, she were to live with another man while her husband is still alive, that would be considered adultery. Paul then makes the important point in verse 4 that believers, those who are united to Christ, are indeed dead to the law through the body of Christ or the death of Christ and thus have been freed to belong to another, namely Jesus Christ. But what does this phrase dead to the law mean? Well, let's first of all say what it doesn't mean so that we do not turn into antinomianism, antinomians, those who are against the law. It doesn't mean that the law has no role in the life of the Christian. For a long time, since the early church, there have been those called antinomians or against the law ones who would say that now that we are in Christ, there is no longer any use for the law. The Pharisees actually blamed the church for teaching this, which they weren't. But there were also many who embraced this teaching as professing Christians and said we no longer need to pay attention to obedience or to keeping the law. It's what Paul was dealing with back in chapter 6, wasn't it? In verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So dead to the law does not mean that the law has no role in the life of the Christian. Rather, the phrase dead to the law means, now listen, that we have been set free from the law's crushing demands and perfect requirements for a right standing with God. This is the best news that you will hear all day, I am convinced. No, because, Christian, you are dead to the law through the death of Christ, your faith in Him, no longer are you under the crushing demands and strict requirements of the law for your salvation. You are no longer under the covenant of works. You are now under the covenant of grace. No longer do you wake up in the morning 
with the crushing demands of the law on you as the way to salvation. If you are in Christ. No longer is personal and perfect obedience to the law your only pathway to heaven. A pathway that is impossible. Travel. No longer is the law our tyrannical master, thundering forth its unattainable demands. No, by grace through faith, we've died to the law in that sense through the death of Christ so that we could be given to Christ. We died to the law so that we can be given to another. We are no longer under the dominion of Satan, sin, hell, and death. And the point is being made here in chapter 7, we are no longer under that crushing requirement of perfection which the law gives to us when we are outside of Christ. Because of our death to the law, we are free to be given to Jesus. That's Paul's point. We've been released from the impossible demands of the law so that we could be free to enter the saving arms of Christ. Robert Mounts put it this way, quote, As a woman whose husband has died is free to marry another, so also are believers, since they have died to the law, free to belong to Christ. Now, for many, for many Christians, either by poor teaching, a lack of understanding, or some kind of emotional trial from perhaps an angry father or disapproving uh, uh, superior. Uh, maybe you've been in a job for 30 years and your boss has been impossible and hard and mean and whatever else. That you have a hard time believing that you really are dead to the law. That, that really everything has been accomplished. That really it is finished. And that you are no longer under the crushing demands of the law for your salvation. You are under grace. You are under grace and you are freely given to another, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are no longer married to the law. You're married to Jesus we are the bride of, of Christ. Once again, Paul is in no way stating that the law has no place in the believer's life. Of course it does. Of course the law has a place in the believer's life. It continues to show us our sin, and it continues to, to be that which shows us our need for Christ, and it serves as a guide for the Christian life. It serves to show us how we are to live as Christians, but it does not, it does not play that role. We are not captive to it as our master that we must perfectly obey in order to have everlasting life. Only that relationship to the law has changed. Not that it's no, no use, it's just changed. The believer is dead to the demands of the law for salvation so that he may belong to another, namely to Jesus. This again is the point of Paul's illustration. There must be a death of the husband if the woman is to be free to be with someone else, to remarry. 
Likewise, there must be a death if we are to be released from the law and its impossible demands for salvation. And there has been one. In Christ, we have died to the law. And in Christ, we have been made alive and we have been set free. Verse 4 states, You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. John Fesco explains that, quote, Once a believer is united to Christ and declared righteous, the law no longer has any claim on him because his sins are forgiven. The perfect law-keeping of Christ and his all-sufficient death in suffering the penalty for the broken law have been imputed by faith alone. Hallelujah. No longer, no longer are we under the condemnation of the law because Christ suffered it for us on the cross. Now, this raises an important question for everyone here this morning. Are you still married to the law as a means of salvation? Do you wake up every morning thinking, I have to do this and that, I have to refrain from doing this and that in order to be accepted by God and to be acceptable to God, to have a right standing with Him, to be justified? Are you still married to the law as a means of salvation? Are you still putting your hope in good works to make you right with God? Are you seeking to earn eternal life through obedience to the law? If so, you must understand this one thing. In order to earn a place in heaven through your performance of the law, your performance must be impeccable. It must be perfect. You must obey all of it. You must love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself perfectly in your outward actions and inwardly from the heart. Because God is perfect, his requirement is and always has been perfection. Once again, Fesco writes, the grand mountain of perfect obedience stands before the guilty sinner who is unable to make his ascent because of his burden of sin. Some might ask, why is that the standard? Why is that the standard? Why is perfection the standard? Well, it's because God is holy. And his law is an extension of his divine character and holiness. Therefore, your obedience to God, my obedience to God's law, must be unstained and unsullied by sin, just as it was in the pre-fall Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve prior to their sin. What we quickly realize is that we all fall dreadfully short of that righteous standard. And there is only one person who could achieve this standard. And he did achieve it. Jesus Christ the righteous one. He was tempted in all the ways that we are, and yet he was, what? Without sin. So it's only in him that we find that perfect righteousness and receive that perfect righteousness as a gift through faith. So when we stand before God, if we are in Christ, we are not standing before God merely with the the, the tatters of our bad, good works that we have been, been exercising. We're not standing before God in the tatters of our sin and unrighteousness. No, in Christ, that, 
that robe of tattered sins and unrighteousness has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Christ bore our sin on the cross and he's given us his righteousness as a gift received by faith. And so we stand before him now justified, robed in the very righteousness and obedience of Jesus Christ. Christ paid for our sins and credited to us his righteousness, again, through faith. Therefore, in Christ, we are reconciled to God, we have peace with him, and we are justified. And so we no longer relate to the law as that which we must obey to be saved. We are no longer under the law in that sense. Rather, we seek to obey God's law out of a heart of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. The law is not a means to salvation. It was never meant to be a means of salvation, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament or today. This leads to Paul's second point. Look there in your outline. You belong to Christ that you may bear fruit for God. Look with me again at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. It's that last clause I want to focus on here for a minute. Paul has repeatedly answered the charge that the doctrine of justification encourages lawlessness, a kind of moral laxity and even a kind of ethical recklessness. But he answers in the previous chapter, may it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in sin? How can we who are united to Christ, slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness, still obey sin as a master? No, we do not belong to sin anymore. We are no longer under the dominion of sin and Satan and hell and death. We belong to Christ in order that we may bear fruit for God, the text teaches us. This fruit will show itself differently in Christians. For some, it will be 30-fold, others 60-fold, others 100-fold. But in every believer, there will be the spirit-wrought fruit of sincere faith and good works. Christ did not save us through our good works, but he surely saved us unto good works. He didn't save us through our good works, but he saved us unto good works. And Paul makes this point plainly in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. He writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, all types of people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now listen, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He has saved us so that he will own us, so that we would be his, and so that he would purify us, and so that we would be zealous for good works. Dear one, in whatever place God has placed you, in whatever place God has placed you, whether it's in a in, in, your, in your schooling, uh, in, in various studies, in, in your work, in your family, in your home, wherever he has placed you, he has placed you there so that you would be a fruit bearer, a bearer of good works. The Christian life is not a passive one, a mere profession. 
It's a life of fruit-bearing, loving and serving God and those around us through our words and through our actions. Finally, we come to the third point that Paul makes in this section. For the sake of time, I'm just going to say a couple of things about this by way of introduction, and then we'll continue to look at it next Lord's Day, God willing. Look there at the third point being made here. Freed from the law, you serve in the new way of the Spirit. Freed from the law, therefore, you serve in the new way of the Spirit. Look with me again at verses 5 and 6. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Once again, Paul is showing us here, dear ones, the difference between someone who is in Christ and someone who is outside of Christ. There's a contrast here. Paul shows the contrast between the person who is outside of Christ, still enslaved to their sins, still living in the flesh, still under the strict demands of the law for their salvation, and the one, by contrast, who is united to Christ through faith and thus has been released from the strict requirements of the law for salvation, which once held them captive. The Christian does not find life and salvation through the law, but in Christ, by the Spirit, through faith. The Christian does not find life and salvation through the law, but in Christ by the Spirit through faith. Once again, dear ones, as it says here, the law was given to expose our sin, stir up our sin, and to show us the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would put our hope and our faith and our trust in his blood and righteousness alone for our salvation. We'll spend more time on this next week. These concepts are so important for a proper grasp of the gospel. For now, let us rejoice in these three truths declared to us in this text. You, dear Christian, are dead to the law through Christ. You belong to Christ that you may bear fruit for God. And you've been freed from the law that you would serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It is so rich. Its contours are full of glorious gospel truth. We pray, Lord, that it would shape and form our church body, our lives as individuals, our families, our children, that we would have a proper understanding of the gospel and it would compel us to good works, not least bold evangelism in our community. Wives loving husbands and husbands loving wives and parents raising their children in the Lord and seeking purity and godliness in all things. Lord, would you work in us that which is pleasing in your sight by your word and spirit.